Lord, thank you that you have shown us what the God of love can do in our lives. You've shown us through your son. You've shown us each personally in so many different ways. And we are ever grateful for how much you love us, for your great grace upon us, and for the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. I pray, Father, as we seek you in your word tonight, that our hearts would continue in an attitude of worship, that we would have a desire to hear from you, that your spirit, that it would be his voice that we hear, and that we would be able to glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So in chapter one, which we studied last week, it was a whole week ago, God commissions Joshua to take the leadership of Israel promises to be with him, tells him to be strong and courageous on several occasions, three if I remember correctly, and that God has given them every place the sole of their foot will tread. In chapter 2, Joshua sends spies into the land to check out Jericho. And we, we talked about that a little bit. And they meet and make a promise to spare Rahab, the prostitute, after she hides them from the king of Jericho. Uh, that's essentially what happened in the first two chapters. And we pick up in chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So they're preparing to move into the land. The instructions were to follow the Ark of God at a distance of approximately three-fifths of a mile. Joshua tells the people to sanctify themselves because God will do wonders among them. Now it does say that after three days, which is a common thread throughout the Bible, uh, often used to foreshadow Jesus three days in the grave before his resurrection. Um, but then he tells them to sanctify themselves. And the word sanctify means to be set apart. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, there we're told that the God of peace himself will sanctify us. Here they're told to sanctify themselves because there are two types of sanctification. There is positional sanctification and practical sanctification. We've talked about this before, but it came up again, so we're going to talk about it again. Yeah, yes. Positional sanctification is what happens the moment we get saved. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That exchange, Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness, that gives us a position of righteousness before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is positional 
sanctification. When God looks at you and me, he doesn't look at us in our sin. He looks at us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yes, praise God indeed. I one time, I think I, think I was at camp on an elementary weekend. I was explaining this to small people. So I picked the smallest one I could find and had them stand behind me. And I said, you see, when you look at, and I don't remember what the kid's name was, I said, but when you look at so-and-so, right, you can't see them, right? What do you see? You see me. That's the way it is with us and, and God. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin, in our filth. He sees Jesus and us clothed in his righteousness. That's positional sanctification. Practical sanctification is the fact that, well, hopefully, um, you're doing better now than you were five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or for some of us who are a little older, 20 years ago, for some of us who are a little older than that, 30 years ago, for some of us who are a little older than that, 40 years ago. <laughs> but the point is, is that we are growing in our faith, that we are growing in holiness, that we are growing in the practical outworking of that faith in our day-to-day -day lives. Practical sanctification. Continually being set apart more and more for him as we seek after him. Positional and practical sanctification. There will be a quiz. No, there won't. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So God tells Joshua, first and foremost, I'm going to exalt you among the people. And the way I was with Moses, that's how I'm going to be with you. So Joshua then goes and tells the people, that God's going to drive out all the nations before them, and the proof of that is the stopping of the Jordan. But let's go back to Joshua. If you remember a little bit, back when we were studying Exodus, uh, Leviticus, not so much Leviticus, but Exodus and Numbers, um, Moses would go out to the tent of meeting, which before the tabernacle was set up outside the camp, before they 
put the tabernacle in the middle and everyone camped around it. Moses would go out to the tent of meeting to meet with God and then he would come back and talk to the people. But it, would, it told us, and I should have put the, the uh, reference down, but I didn't, um, that Moses would go out to the tent of meeting and his servant Joshua would go with him. Then Moses would go back to the people and what did Joshua do? He stayed at the tent of meeting, dwelling in the presence of God. Right? We see the various times that Joshua is spoken of before we get to the book of Joshua, a great humility in him. Well, Luke 18.14 tells us that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Throughout Joshua's life, his testimony was always that of reliance upon God and humility. And what does God say? I'm going to exalt you. We're going to talk about this again on Sunday in James, but that's just a sneak peek. James is not as nice about it. Um, as you've discovered, James is not as nice about many things. But I love that. Now, I do want you to notice the difference between the Red Sea crossing and the crossing of the Jordan. For the Red Sea, God had Moses stretch out his hand and he parted the sea. Then they crossed. The difference here is the priests have to step in the water first. Here, we literally have a step of faith. God, I think, often does this with us. He asks us to take a bigger step of faith each time we move forward. The first time they had to cross a body of water, God just separated it and they crossed on dry land. Here, that water wasn't moving until the priests were in it. And so I think this is to increase our faith and trust in him and to deepen our relationship with him to help us make a greater commitment to God. Remember, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And what came to mind uh, is Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch uh, at the end of Acts chapter 8. So Philip was in the middle of a revival in, wasn't Caesarea, it was somewhere else. Anyways, he was in the middle of a revival. People were getting saved. He was preaching the gospel. Good times. And God says, I want you to go out to a road that's in the middle of the desert. Right? No city, no camp, no nothing. Now, if I was Philip, it, I would maybe think, but Lord, Things are going good here. You want me to go out to the middle of nowhere? I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. The spirit of God is working. People are getting healed. That's a desert. But I love Philip because God says, go out to the desert. And Philip goes, okay. And he goes out to the middle of the desert. Right? He doesn't ask, but what's step two? What am I going to do when I get there? What, what is this about? What are you trying to do? No, he just goes. When he gets out there, he sees a lone chariot rolling down the road. God says, overtake the chariot. And Philip doesn't say, why? Who's in the chariot? What am I supposed to say when I get there? Well, how is this going to turn out? Do I get to go back to the revival after I'm done? Go overtake the chariot. And Philip says, okay. And he goes and overtakes the chariot. And when he gets there, the best part about it is he gets there 
And he doesn't need any further instructions because he gets there. The guy just happens, just happens, mm -hmm. happens to be reading Isaiah 53. What we know is Isaiah 53. For him, it was in a scroll and it didn't have a chapter number yet. But he was reading Isaiah 53 like a sheep before it shares is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he jumps up in the chariot and goes, hey, you. Now, I'm an Ethiopian eunuch. I'm high in the, in the uh, court of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. I probably have guards. I, I'm wealthy. And, and some guy just jumps up on my chariot. Hey, what you reading? <laughs> you know, and, and he goes, so he shares the passage and asks Philip, who's the prophet talking about himself or somewhere else? And Philip explains to him from that scripture forward that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins. And the Ethiopian gets saved and he baptized him. And then, then Philip gets like half raptured, right? It wasn't a full rapture. He just gets caught up by the spirit and dropped off somewhere else. And guess what he does when he gets there? Well, he just starts preaching the gospel again. I love that because I think there's times that God asks us to step out in faith. Now, sometimes he asks us to step out in faith and we're a little stubborn, kind of like Gideon, and we put out our fleeces and we put out our, Lord, I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. And God is gracious and he's patient and he gives it to us so we know. But I think sometimes God wants us to step out in faith and he wants us to put our feet in the water before we see the provision. He wants us to put our feet in the water before we see the miracle. And I think that's what we're being taught here. It does mention that the Jordan overflows its banks uh, at the time of the harvest. Now, this was the barley harvest and the flax harvest. Why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the wheat harvest was at a different time of year. And uh, we're going to talk about the timing of this in a little bit. Uh, but the wheat harvest was at a different time of year, and people have used that to say, oh, see, it says the Jordan overflowed the time of a harvest, but they celebrate Passover. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is in April, right? Well, the wheat harvest is in the summer, and, uh, and they celebrated Passover in April, so it can't be the harvest. Obviously, the Bible can't be trusted. But it wasn't the wheat harvest. It was the barley and flax harvest, which, guess what, was in April. So the Bible doesn't have any contradiction. Um, but this was evidenced that it was the flax harvest by the fact that Rahab hid the spies under stacks of flax. Stacks of flax. That should be a band name. Uh, but under stacks of flax in chapter 2. Um, chapter 4. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them saying, Take for yourselves twelve. 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded. They took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. 
carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So we have the command to set up the memorial stones to uh, remind the future generations that God brought them into the land by stopping the flow of the Jordan. So they have 12 stones, they take them out, they drop them on, or they set them up on one side. And Joshua, well, he goes a step further because God didn't command him to set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, but he did it anyway. Uh, and at the time of this writing, they were still there. I'm guessing they've moved since then. I mean, the course of the Jordan has changed and whatnot. But I highly recommend you find the ruins of Jericho and go diving and see if the 12 stones are still at the bottom of the river. Um, why? That's the big question. Why? Well, God tells him. One day, your children are going to look at this pile of rocks. They're going to be like, hey, Grandpa, why, why are there 12 rocks piled up by the, by the river right there? And he goes, and then you're going to tell them that these stones were set up as a reminder that God stopped the flow of the Jordan River so that we could cross over. And I think it's not a bad thing for us to have memorials uh, because we can quickly forget all the wonderful things God has done for us. And memorials can serve an important role in that, as long as they don't become an item of, we don't worship, right? They weren't supposed to worship the rocks. The rocks were to remind them. Now, something that I've done uh, several times at various weddings that I've done is had the couple, you know, you have the couple join hands while they're giving their vows and all that. I'll have them hold a stone. I'll, I'll have them uh, pick one and bring it themselves and hold that stone. I had one couple that they did the the unity sand, you know, where they poured in two different colors of sand, and they put the stone in there, so that then they poured the unity stand, sand, stand, sand, sand, the little grains of rock, um, over the bigger rock that they held throughout the ceremony. Uh, I've also had people, uh, this is a little bit different, but do that with baptism, where you hold a rock, and then when you go down in the water, you drop it and come back up, and the rock symbolizes your old life and whatnot. But uh, I love using the memorial stone uh, because five years, 10 years, 20 years, right? That stone is there and it can remind you of the vows that you took. Um, Psalm 77 verse 11 says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 10. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. It came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad and half tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So the people cross over the Jordan. Once everybody's over, the priests come, and he makes a note. 
Because remember, Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they decided they wanted to settle on the other side, where King Og and King Bashan, they had defeated them. Well, let us stay here. We've got livestock. This is land for livestock. And Moses said, ah, you're going to dishearten your brothers by not going to war. And they said, fine. Our wives and little ones will stay here. Our men will go to war. And Moses said, okay. <laughs> so here they are, keeping their promise, sending 40,000 men uh, prepared for war over. And then God exalts Joshua so that the people feared him as they feared Moses. Now, I am such a cynic. Every time I read that for the last week while I've been preparing for tonight, I'm like, man, I hope they feared him better than they feared Moses, because how many times did they blow it under Moses? <laughs> and, and I get it. The people feared Moses and they respected him. But right then you had the rebellion of Korah where they spoke out against Moses. Even Aaron and Miriam spoke out against Moses. And I'm like, why can't I'm just kind of hoping they treated Joshua a little bit better than they treated Moses. Moses put up with a lot. Um, and, and I know it doesn't say it here, and that's not in the Bible. It's just, it's the cynical thought that kept going through my head every time I read that verse. Uh, so verse 15. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to, now I'm just going to stop real quick. Do you notice how many times that's happened so far tonight? Command the people to get ready to, to cross over and the priest to pick up the ark. So what do they do? The priest picked up the ark. The people got ready. Command the priest to go stand in the Jordan. Joshua goes, hey, go stand in the Jordan. So they did. Here, command the priest to come up out of the Jordan. Command him to get stones, right? Command him to come up out of the Jordan. Then the next thing Joshua does is exactly that. I just noting his, his, his immediate and very... Um, very literal obedience. Command him to come up out of the Jordan. So he goes, priests, come up out of the Jordan. Just on the nose every time. Joshua's a good guy. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, What are these stones? And you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the priests come out of the Jordan. It begins to flow again. There are some who claim, uh, right, because everybody has to have an explanation, right? Not okay, I'm going to take that back. Some people have to have an explanation. Uh, I am perfectly fine with the fact that God stopped the flow of the Jordan River. That doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, the same thing with the Red Sea. We watched a, a National Geographic special on that where this guy put forth a theory that's been around for a long time that the Israelites did not actually cross the Red Sea, that they crossed the Reed Sea. It is a dumb excuse, right? The Bible doesn't say the Reed Sea. It's a terrible interpretation. Um, it says the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea is actually only about three feet deep. So they use that as an excuse, right? The wind blew. It was easy for this nation to cross over three feet of water as the wind made it a little more shallow. No. Maybe that's the case. 
Now imagine the miracle that God did to drown the entire Egyptian army in three feet of water. There's, yes, that has, that has been reported, that, that there has been stuff found at the bottom of the Red Sea that, that, that um, authenticates the story, or the, the account, not a story. Um, so here we come, right? And they, some archaeologists found that there was a place at some time where something caved in and a bunch of debris fell into the Jordan River. And that explains how, how the Israelites crossed over the Jordan here. Let's assume that's true. Then God had to get all that debris out at just the moment the priest stepped out of the Jordan so that it could start flowing again. You see, I have no problem with the God, as we've, been, we've read several times, the God of all the earth. I have no problem when he interrupts his own natural laws. Right? He made the law that said water flows like this. And if he wants to stop it from doing so, he can Later on in the book of Joshua? And what did Jesus said in Genesis 1-1? Yeah. Well, it was actually Pastor Chuck that said that. Um, Pastor Chuck said, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, everything after it is pretty easy to believe. Since he created the heavens and the earth, it's not a problem for him to part waters. Since he created the heaven and the earth, it's not a problem for him to stop the sun. Well, actually, he stopped the earth from rotating. We're going to see that later in the book of Joshua. He created the heavens and the earth. He created us. He can bring a human back to life. That's not even hard for him. Right? Because he's God. And then what's the point of all of it? That all the peoples, verse 24, of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, the hand of Jehovah, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Psalm 89.8 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. I like that verse. But the whole point, it's the whole reason that we have the Bible we have today because Hebrews tells us we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. God can do that. Imagine what he can do for us. We just might have to dip our feet in the water. Chapter 5. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So the kings of the land, their hearts melt. No spirit in them, no fight left when they heard what God had done for the children of Israel. So you got to picture this scene. They were in the plains of Jericho, right? They crossed right near the city. I don't know how far it was, right? Because we don't know exactly where the Jordan was at the time. Maybe it was a mile. Maybe it was a couple hundred yards. Maybe it was five miles. I don't know. But I imagine... The guards on the wall of Jericho probably had a pretty good view. Or at the very least, they sent out spies to see what was going on. So let's assume that they could see it from the wall, right? Maybe it was spies who brought back a report. But let's assume they could see it from the wall. 
Oh, look at all those people in there. Oh, is that Israel? Yeah, they're coming here. Watch it. How are they going to get across the Jordan? It's overflowing its banks. We got a, we got a month or two. We're good. Before, you know, we, we got time to figure this out. And then all of a sudden, the waters stop. And three million people cross over. The first 40,000 of whom are the armed Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh prepared for war. Now I imagine if I'm standing on the wall with my spear and I see this happen, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I drop my spear and walk away. I'd be like, uh, I'm going to be a farmer. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm going on vacation. It's my vacation week, boss. It's my vacation. Could you imagine what that would look like and then how quickly it spread? So how did it spread? Did Jericho send out spies or, or people to, to a neighboring town to go, listen, this is what happened. We kind of need your help. And the other kings were like, uh-uh. I, I don't, I, no. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, because it said it wasn't just the people of Jericho. It was all the kings of the Ammonites and all the kings of the Canaanites. They heard what happened. Their hearts melted within them and they had no spirit anymore. In other words, they wanted to give up, which would have been wise. If they had half a brain, they would have run. Now, we talked last week a little bit about how Israel crossing into the land is a typology for us. It's a typology, them crossing over the Jordan into Israel is a typology of us crossing into the new life in Christ, where I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which is Galatians 2.20. This is a position of faith for us because we trust that God will give us victory over the flesh the same way he was going to give Israel victory over the land they were coming into. The people of the land recognized their defeat. We have to recognize the defeat of our flesh life in Christ by faith. This recognition of our victory in Christ ends this yo-yo life of victory and defeat. It allows us to enter into the life of the Spirit and begin to experience the victory that is ours in Christ. Now, like Israel, we have to go take it. It's there. We already, it's the victory's already ours. But we have to go take it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, it says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Um, our flesh can be likened to the strong man, empowered by sin in the enemy. Right? And that's ground that doesn't want to be easily given up. Jesus, of course, is the stronger man, empowering us by his spirit so we can walk in the new life that is ours in Christ. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and he circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. I don't think that that is, is, is a tourist attraction in Israel uh, currently. Um, 
on your right, right, you've got the bus going down the road, on your right, everyone, that's the hill of the force. No, 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 just, no, move on, don't even tell me. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war, these, of course, were all of those who uh, refused to enter the land 40 years earlier, uh, who were men of war, who came out of Egypt, were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in, that, in their places in the camp till they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Um, so here's, here's the reality. Forty years they wandered in the desert. All the people who had been circumcised when they came out of Egypt had not circumcised their sons, even though it had been commanded in the law. So before they could enter into the land, it's a cutting away of the flesh, a renewing of the covenant with God, a, a willingness of the people to say, we're going to leave our old ways behind, and we're going to walk in your ways when we enter the land. They call the place Gilgal, which literally means rolling, because God had rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, Gilgal became very important to the Israelites a little later on. This became the place where the tabernacle was set up and where they offered sacrifices up in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, and there were several places. There was Gilgal and then there was Shiloh. Um, I want to say there was one more before they, Solomon built the temple. Or David actually moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem and then Solomon built the temple there. Uh, verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. This is how we know that they, this all was taking place sometime in the month of April because that's when Passover was to be celebrated. Um, at the twilight, sorry, I stopped in the middle of a sentence. Uh, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So they eat the produce of the land celebrating Passover and the manna stopped. So the first thing they do in the land is to renew the covenant with God through circumcision. Again, that sign of cutting away of the flesh and committing to live a life following after God. The second thing they do is to keep the Passover. I'm guessing, since they neglected circumcision in their 40 years of, of waiting for those people to die, uh, they probably neglected the celebration of the Passover as well. It's not recorded for us that after the first Passover that they celebrated it again. Uh, well, I take that back. They did celebrate it again um, after they left Egypt, but before the rebellion, when, when they were supposed to go into the land. So it, was, it would have been roughly 38 years since they had done this. 
But now, as they move into the land, this is a reminder that the people could not deliver themselves, right? The Passover was always meant as a reminder of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt, his killing of the firstborn and passing over the Jews who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintel of their house. And it served them as a reminder that they couldn't do it themselves, right? 400 years plus they were in Egypt. They couldn't get out on their own. Moses tried to do it on his own, failed miserably, came back, God did it. Now, they're celebrating the Passover here so that as they move into the land, they will be reminded that it's God who will do the work. It's God who will drive out these nations who were before them. It's God who will give them this victory. You see, we begin in God's power, we continue in God's power, and we have to end in God's power. Galatians 3, Paul addresses this in the first three verses of that chapter. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And I can't tell you how many Christians I've met, how many Christians I've counseled, how many times in my own life, right, I'm guilty of being a foolish Galatian, where I've tried to do it on my own. Or somebody has come to me and they've tried to do it on their own. And Paul asks this question. Are you so foolish that, that you began in the Spirit, a work of God's Spirit in our hearts to bring us to Christ, where the Spirit then comes and indwells us, and the Spirit comes and fills us and empowers us? He goes, that's how you started. Now you're going to try to do it on your own? Jesus warned us not to call people fools, right? Or to call them empty-headed. But I think I, I, I can take the title of fool to myself when I try to do stuff on my own. When I trust in God's spirit, it just works so much better. That's exactly what the Passover, I think, is representing. It's a reminder to them. I was reading uh, a quote by our favorite devotional author, Smith Wigglesworth. It, and, and it was, I actually saw it on the internet because I follow a site that posts his quotes on Facebook. And he talked about, and, and he wrote this back in the late 1800s. He said, the day is going to come when the body of Christ essentially is going to be split. You're going to have those that chase after the word of God. Right? And, and, and that's not a bad thing. And he goes, but then you're going to have those, but they do it to the neglect of the spirit. Then you're going to have those that chase after the Spirit of God, but they're going to do it to the neglect of the Word. He says the church that does both, oh, how God's going to work through that church. Right? Because we're dedicated to this book because it's God speaking to us. The book isn't God. Right? This is a dead cow wrapped around some paper and ink but the word that it contains. But we can't get into the word and forget that we can't do it on our own. It doesn't matter how well you know this book. 
You can't even know this book apart from the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2. One of them, if you read them both, you'll find it. But we can't understand, apply, and live out this book in our flesh. We just can't. We need the truth of God's word. We need the power of God's spirit. Jesus said in, in John chapter 4, the day is coming when those who truly worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. We need both. Verse 13. Ooh! Verse 13 is the cliffhanger, my dear brothers and sisters. Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. I've always loved this answer. It's one of my favorite spots in the Bible. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the commander, and, and he said, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So we have to ask, and, and we're going to get into this, right? So Joshua sees the commander of the Lord's army standing there. He doesn't know that's who he is. And he walks up to him and he goes, Oi! Are you on my side or their side? And the commander of the Lord's army says, Neither. I don't know. If a guy's standing before me with a cylinder on and I said, Are you, are, are you on my team? And he's like, Uh-uh. I might be a little worried about that. But, Joshua was on his team. Very different. So he asks, he, he, but he says, as the commander of the Lord's army, I have come. And what does Joshua do? Falls on his face and worships him. Now, that makes this all the more interesting. If it was just an angel, they wouldn't have accepted worship. We see that in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. We see it in other places where someone tries to worship an angel and the angel's like, uh-uh. I'm a servant of God just like you. Yeah, maybe I look a little different with all my eyes and hands and wings, but I'm a servant like you. Don't worship me. The commander of the Lord's army doesn't rebuke Joshua for it, which means it's got to be Jesus. This is what we call a Christophany or a theophany, an Old Testament uh, appearance of Christ. Uh, and this happened multiple times. Uh, you know, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God ate dinner with two of his angels, with Abraham, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God wrestled with um, Jacob before he met his brother Esau. God showed up in a bush and talked to Moses. Right? Time and time again this happens, and it will continue to happen. We'll see it in the book of Judges. We'll see it other places. Um, and so this has got to be an Old Testament appearance of Christ known as a Christophany. Of course, Jesus' ultimate manifestation of God the Father was his incarnation, which we read about in the Gospels. So he tells Joshua to take off his sandals, for he's standing on holy ground, and Joshua does so. And most of us, most, uh, most of us, or most scholars, not, I'm not a scholar, but most scholars believe that then the instructions we read about in chapter 6, of course, then came. We know they came from the Lord, probably came from this conversation that he had with uh, Jesus right here. 
Now, I have to imagine Joshua. God said, I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to be with you. Be strong and courageous. The people are going to fear you the way they feared Moses. You're going to take this land. And we know, because God kept repeating over and over, we talked about this last week, that Joshua was probably a little scared, probably a little nervous. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is standing right in front of him. I can only imagine that once he got over the shock of him standing there with a sword drawn, fell down and worshipped him, he, Joshua figured out pretty quickly who this was. That this was a great relief for Joshua, for the Lord to physically show up before the first battle at Jericho. Uh, a reminder of God's promise to be with him as they move into the land to conquer it. So with that, cliffhanger! We'll talk about the fun instructions, march around the city once a day for six days on the seventh day, but in total silence. Then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times, and on the seventh time around, blow the ram's horn and shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. Yeah, right. It's going to be pretty sweet. I, I love it. But th So next week, we're going to look, of course, at the, at the conquering of Jericho. And then we're going to look at AI and how quickly pride crops up, right? They conquer Jericho. They follow the instructions exactly. AI, a couple guys go, ah, it's a small town. Don't even send the whole army. Just a few of us will go, we'll take care of this. And it doesn't work. But until then, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us and who gave himself for us. I pray, God, for your help for each of us to walk in the victory that we have in Christ by the power of your Spirit as we continue with our week, as we seek to honor and glorify you with our lives. May your grace and love be upon us as your Spirit works in and through us to help us walk in this victory that's ours, to help us live out the truth of your word because we are yours. To you be all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name.